Good morning, church family. Pray that you're feeling just Jesus in this place as we worship his name, the name that is above all names. Amen. And it's just amazing. We have this God that is greater and bigger and more powerful than anything. And yet he cares for the lowly. He cares for the overlooked, the marginalized in our lives. And today we have an opportunity over this space and this room to consider the overlooked, the marginalized, the orphan that is in our midst here in our city, in our county, and then also around the world. And to help me introduce today, I have the wonderful Wendy McMahon. And you may know her as, wow, you got a couple claps there. Uh, you may know Wendy in her maiden name, which is Wendy Folsom. And so Blair and Trish Folsom are her parents. Um, and Wendy used to work for Food for the Hungry. And you have just been an example for me and really for many of us of what it looks like to care for the overlooked and the marginalized. And so you worked for Food for Hungry for several years, serving in Peru. And now you're local. And so tell us what you're doing. Yeah, well, I was a sent missionary through Calvary when I was in Peru. And then coming back and getting married, my husband and I were just asking, who are the most vulnerable among us here in Orange County and across Southern California? And while there's, you know, many vulnerable here, the group that he really drew us to was children in foster care. So I'm the director of foster care, adoption, and kinship for Olive Crest, just down the street here, Ooh. our Orange County office. And by down the street, like literally 4th Street. Yes, yes. I, I was actually there before coming here this morning, and it was a two-minute drive, I think. Excellent. Yes, very close. <laughs> and so I'm working just to find families for kids, and a lot of times the kids will, um, will need help, and parents will realize that they need that help, and Calvary has a great Safe Families for Children program that takes care of those kids when, when parents know that they can't take care of their kids for a little while. And then other times children end up in foster care. And foster care is when they become part of the court system and they need a family to formally take care of them for a period of time or a long period of time. And then many times our Olive Crest foster families also become adoptive families where they can provide a permanent forever home for those kids as well. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Working in foster care, you have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I know that there's heartbreaking stories. It's also amazing stories that God's doing incredible things. And there's one story we're going to see today. What are we going to watch? Great. So we're going to watch the story of a family that just adopted through Olive Crest this year. Their, their name is the Struvi family. And every family story is totally unique. This particular family, this couple felt that God was calling them to grow their family first and primarily through foster care and adoption. And so we're just going to see uh, a little bit of what God's done through them. All right. Check the screens. Family is this, and it is, it is crazy. It's wild. It's amazing. I can't wait till I get home every day from work, and these little guys come rushing at the door. Early on, I already had the experience of adoption. When I met my husband, I told him that I wanted to adopt. I wasn't necessarily interested um, in having my own children. My own thought process on it, I was actually bitter towards adoption. Like, I wanted no part of it at all. I'm Choctaw Indian, and because of that, I always wanted my own bloodline. And that, that was my, my issue I was having. But then over time, it just, a couple years had gone by, and the Lord just started chipping away at my heart, and, and I was totally open to it. I couldn't see it any other way now. Eli came in at a month old. We got Tristan at eight months old. I just want them to serve the Lord. That's just where our hearts are at. That's why we even got into foster care. The rewarding part is... I come home to these little guys and they're, Daddy, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm, I'm a dad. I can't believe I even was against it at one point. I mean, I've got my boys, you know what I mean? And, and just, I couldn't be any happier. The rewarding part of it all is just knowing that they're cared for and loved in the period that you have them, whether they stay permanently or they go back, you know, in a short time. The unknown gets a little scary at times, but trusting in the Lord obviously is huge, and that's what gets us through. They're just awesome boys. Like, you know, they're not from the same parents at all, and you would never know that. And I feel like we've given birth to them. That's how attached to my children I am. Olive Crest, 
is our extended family, and I speak so highly of them just to go through this crazy process and them to be kind of the middleman supporting us and leading us and helping us in those really tough moments. They're just family. They come into your home. They're supporting you. They see these kids, where they've come from, and they're just truly there to support and be on the journey with us. <laughs> That's family. <laughs> So you were seeing there the adoption day for Tristan and Eli, and since we filmed that, another little girl who's been in that family's care has also moved toward adoption, and they're finalizing her adoption in a couple of weeks. So if God stirred something in you through that video um, or just through everything happening today, we'll be out on the patio along with Bethany Christian Services, We're Olive Crest, and then Safe Families for Children, and other ministries are right there as well. Yeah, so I want to challenge you, wherever you're at in uh, the adoption process, I could adopt today, or whoa, I'm way past those days. (laughs) We want you to be involved in some way in orphan care, and I'll come up in a little bit and give you some tangible ways to do that. But come see Wendy up at the tents, the white tents after our service, and if anything, just say, we got your back, we're praying for you. Because the music is really cute, the kids are cute, the stories are hard. There's a spiritual battle that takes place. And so with that in mind, I want to just pray for you and and pray for this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the call that you have given us as believers of you, Lord Jesus, to care for the overlooked, the marginalized, those that our society say don't fit. God, I pray that we here at Calvary Church, that the DNA of this place would be about caring for the orphan. And so God, move in our hearts today. Also pray for Wendy and countless others who are standing on the front lines on the battle. God, equip them, encourage them. When they're at their most weary point, may your Holy Spirit fill them to give them strength. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you, Matt and Wendy. Wonderful. Great, great video. Thank you for sharing that family with us. We're excited for when God is doing wonderful things in the family, the life of the church, as well as individual families as well. For 40 years, focus in the family has been a staple in every ministry I've ever been involved with. Early after my years of seminary, to have uh, Dr. James Dobson and some of his uh, films and some of his books, tremendous resources, and God has blessed that ministry over those many years as well. And in 2005, through a process of, here we go, transition and succession, uh, Calvary, you know, you get the turn of the, okay. All right. Uh, they brought in new leadership and, uh, Jim Daly became the president of uh, focus on the family and he's brought uh, kind of a fresh new approach to that in reaching out across a lot of lines that have been established over the years. And we're thankful that focus on the family is continuing to be that staple resource for strengthening families and speaking out on those things that are Christ-centered and and biblically oriented as well. And this morning, we're so pleased to have Jim with us. He's got a tremendous story, as it says in the little bio that I pulled off the website, from orphan to the head of an international Christian ministry. And uh, he is serving through the radio broadcast, reaching over 6 million people and 1,000 radio stations. And uh, I love what it says in one of his books, or it says, I am living proof, he writes, finding home in his book, Finding Home, that no matter how torn up the road has already been or how pothole infested it may look ahead, nothing, nothing is impossible for God. And so we look forward to hearing from Jim this morning. Let's welcome him as Jim comes on up here this morning. Hey, everybody. How you doing? It's great to be with you. You know, I'm a Southern California native, so I love being here. And I'm sorry to hear about the fires. That, it's something we've been praying for, focus on the family, uh, for the past couple of weeks. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's some church members that are impacted in Anaheim Hills, so our heart goes out to you. What a wonderful thing to have a body, the body of Christ to be able to support families that are going through that. So... Yeah, you know, I love the scripture says he's close to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Isn't that a great scripture? It's almost like a prerequisite. You know, when, when you're emptied of pride, when the, if I could say it this way, when the snot gets knocked out of you, 
it's awesome that God is saying, okay, now you're ready. Isn't that something? And uh, this area of foster care is so close to my heart because I was a foster kid. And that's a part of the story that both has been a benefit but also a challenge for me. Uh, I can remember when the, the transition was occurring. And Pastor Dave, thank you so much for leading it well at this church. I hope you guys appreciate how difficult it is. <laughs> yeah. And I know you have, it, you have the November time coming up and all that. And for everybody, the leadership of the church, I would just encourage you to do it well. So often in the Christian community, we fail in that transition. And I just appreciate you modeling it, Pastor Dave. And it's going to be tough, isn't it? <laughs> I remember with Dr. Dobson, he was like, ah. But it's so hard because you've been the leader. And uh, again, I just admire a graceful and healthy transition. So we'll be praying for that as well. Uh, before I get into the story, I do, there's a couple of things. You talk about Dr. Dawson. We had an institute there at Focus on the Family for college students. <laughs> and I remember we had one, uh, we'd have about 88 uh, young people come through there every semester. And this one young man came in. He wrote Dr. Dobson a, a, a poem. And he said, roses are red, violets are blue. I got spanked because of you. <laughs> Which I thought was great. We had to double security, but it worked out. Um, we have a prayer box at Focus on the Family in the Welcome Center. If you've ever been, if you haven't come sometime, we love having guests. We have about 200,000 people that come to the campus and just check it out. Uh, but there was this one prayer that a little eight-year-old boy put in there uh, a while back. And he said, this is an awesome prayer. Pray for my brother. He wets the bed. Please pray for me. I share the bed with my brother. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. That is humanity right there, right? Uh, pray for him, but really it's about me. <laughs> I love it. God has a sense of humor, don't you think? I believe that that is something that he possesses as his character. I wonder what his belly laugh is like. I want to hear God's belly laugh. And, you know, Jesus was accused of many things. One of them was being too, you know, laughing too much. Imagine that with the Stoic Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's Jesus laughing with those sinners. That's what I want to do. I want to laugh with those guys so that God might crack their heart open to himself. Isn't that great? You know, in the Scripture... I think it says 50 times, take care of the widow and the orphan. It's just like me. I am so dense. Lord, I want to give you my life. What can I do for you? It's like the Lord saying, well, for the 53rd time, take care of the widow and the orphan. And that's something we've done now. Uh, you have, is your spouse your balancing factor? Have you noticed that we're attracted to someone that thinks opposite of us? You know, if you're a night owl, your spouse is probably a morning person right? I mean, it's just, it's natural. If you're a white chocolate eater, they're dark chocolate, you know, it just goes right down the line. Probably 90% of us fit this because I think in God's, in God's way, he's trying to complete our deficit, right? He's trying to complete us. And so if you're, for my wife and I, she's a biochemist major. She's introverted. I'm the extrovert guy. And it's amazing. I was so attracted to her. But that's, that's my story. It's probably your story if you're married. And if you're not married yet, uh, that's going to be your story. But Jean and I, uh, you know, we talked about doing foster and we got into it. And it's tough, as everybody has said. It can be really, really hard. And we had two kids with us for a year. And for eight months, they've been gone. And then we, uh, we got them back and they're not in foster now, but the mom had died of an overdose of heroin. The, hus the husband, the father, is in a recovery home. And the grandparents weren't equipped or in a place where they could take care of these kids. And I remember I was really upset. I'm like, oh, Gene, I mean, our schedule is so busy. I mean, I'm running this big Christian organization. <laughs> and my wonderful wife said, well, if you're going to tell people to do it, shouldn't we do it? Yeah. Why do you have to say that? But isn't that the great thing of a wonderful spouse who follows the Lord? Kind of checking you. It's like an ice hockey thing, you know, right against the glass. And she got me. So we have these two kids now, and it's not, it's not easy, but it's the right thing to do. One of the wonderful things that I've learned with Focus on the Family and Ray Vanderlaan's series, That the World May Know, which is a, kind of a a Holy Land tour, but Ray does it in a very unique way. It's actually Marine spiritual boot camp 
So when you go on this tour with Ray, you walk about 115 miles in 10 days in over 100 degree weather. We were there in September last year and uh, we had five people pass out and Ray just kept going. We're like, Ray, these people are passed out in a wadi. You know, it's probably literally like 130 degrees in these rocks. And just by God's providence, we had three doctors with us. So they stopped and they're caretaking for the people passed out. Ray just keeps going. They'll, they'll come back. Just leave them there. <laughs> and then I said, do we have people sign waivers for this trip? <laughs> we didn't. Now we do. <laughs> but what was awesome in that trip at the very end, he, you know, you're there for 14 days. And he said, our culture in America still is connected to Greek and Roman culture because what we pursue is what they pursued comfort and leisure but what God wants us to do is show his his peace his shalom to a world of chaos isn't that a wonderful way to look at it that when sin entered the world chaos entered the world the opposite of God's plan for us you will see no greater chaos on the face of this earth than foster care these families are in chaos This little family we're helping, the dad's in that halfway house. He was a war vet, got shot twice. He's a heroin addict. He's been clean for seven months. He's 28 years old. He's lost his wife to heroin, and his two kids are living with us. And we're just doing whatever we can to bring God's shalom into this young man's chaos. And really, that's what we're talking about today. And that's what's so wonderful about the church. You know, folks, not every church has a heart for this, which is so sad. What I have found is that great scripture says, do these good deeds so they'll honor your Father in heaven. So when we started the orphan care at Focus, um, one guy called me, John Weiss. He's got kind of a grovelly voice like this. He's politically very liberal. Berkeley grad. That's all you got to say. Isn't it amazing? (laughs) Boom, Boom. Put him in that box. But he says, he, I'd never met him before. He says, Jim, uh, can we have coffee? Sure. And he, he owns the independent newspaper. It's like 350,000 circulation in Colorado. It's got to be a third of the population of Colorado. And uh, very influential. So we have coffee. He says, Jim, I never thought Focus would ever do anything that good like that orphan care program that you do. And I said, really? <laughs> And uh, I said, you, John, you probably just don't know what we do. He goes, you're all politics, right? I said, actually, no, that's like 2% of our budget. The other 98 goes to strengthening marriage, helping people from the brink of suicide. We get 250,000 calls for help every month. Is that, it's amazing. Praise God. That's a God thing. And we're able to pour into people's lives in that way. But John Weiss, because of the orphan care thing, and he's publishing this newspaper, and he says, you know, we've carpet bombed you guys for 17 years. We're going to start writing better articles about you. (laughs) But that scripture popped into mind. Do these good deeds so they might honor your Father in heaven. Isn't that what it's about? It's not for our glory. It's not for us. It's not to pat ourselves on the back. And in fact, when you look at the early church in Rome, this is what they did. They went to the disenfranchised, the marginal people, and took care of them to where Josephus and other historians said, who are these people, these Christians? They have no concern for their own lives. They feed the plague-infested areas of Rome. They go in and take care of these dying people with no regard for their own life. How does that apply to us today? I think it's right here in foster and orphan care, in our culture today. It's the giving of your life, the laying down of your life for these children. And so that's why it's an honor to be here today. Um, My story, man. So Don Hodel was on the board at Focus on the Family. Don Hodel was President Reagan's Secretary of Energy and Secretary of, of Interior. So he was on the board at Focus. He came in to help the initial transition to get Dr. Dobson kind of used to not running day-to-day operations. (laughs) For a year, my wife and I prayed for the poor guy coming behind Don Hodel. I just didn't know it was going to be me. (laughs) And uh, Don and I, we were walking down the hallway one day, and he turned to me and said, Dr. Dobson, the board, and I, we we want you to take focus forward. And I said, no, and I started laughing. No, 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 I'm I'm not perfect. I'm imperfect. I can't do it. 
Dr. Dobson. I was petrified. Petrified. Don Hodell coming in behind Dr. Dobson and then Jim Daly. And I remember the night before the investiture service, you know, the handing over the baton officially. I didn't sleep a wink. My wife, Jean, slept like a baby, which I thought was really rude. <laughs> I mean, I literally didn't sleep. The whole night I'm wrestling with God. I'm just saying, Lord, this is a mistake. You ever say to the Lord, you're making a mistake? That's really gutsy. But it, I think it's because I was, I was really afraid. I, I can't be him. And that whole night, I mean, I said, Lord, Lord. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit speaks to you, but it's just kind of for me, it's always that outside-in thought that just wafts through your mind, your consciousness. And I'm sitting there wrestling with the Lord. I'm not, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not that. And what he spoke into my heart was, and this is exactly what I heard, it's not about you. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I love that spanking from God. It's not about you. You know it's the Lord because I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, it's all about me. And the Lord said, hey, by the way, it's not about you. But when I look at it, here, here's why I think the Lord did it. And this gives you context for why I was petrified. So for me, I grew up, at, I was born in West Covina. You all know, I, when I talk in Pennsylvania about this, people don't know what I'm talking about. I was born in West Covina. We lived in Alhambra. We lived in Long Beach. We were the normal dysfunctional family. Now, you got to have an uncle who is, like, weird, right? At least one uncle. I always say, is there a perfect family in here? <laughs> if so, I want to talk to you after the service. Because there's always something. And for us, my mom and dad, I was the last born of five kids. They were all born one year apart. And then six years to my closest sibling, I was born. So I was the oops baby. Anybody oops baby, let me see your hand. I want to see how many of us are here. Not many. Just a handful. But it's always wonderful to be introduced as the accident. I mean, you learn like at four and five when your mom and dad say, oh, this is our little accident. Yeah, what about the others, you know? Oh, they were all planned. Um, makes you feel real confident. <laughs> but my dad had a problem drinking. Uh, you know, it just was a disease that he could not beat. And I remember one night I was five years old. Two older brothers, two older sisters, and uh, my dad had a ball-ping hammer sitting in a lazy boy chair, and he was banging holes in the wall, and he was drinking, and he was saying, I'm going to kill your mother when she gets home. I had no clue what was going on. I mean, I didn't know my mother had done anything that deserved death. And uh, my brother slipped out of the house, got to a phone, called the police, and the police came and arrested my dad. It's a scene that, unfortunately, for many of the foster care kids and orphans, it's kind of normal. And so I watched my dad get handcuffed, pushed into the squad car. My mom pulled up right at the same time, and he was taken away. And that was the end of our family. And I remember my mom now on the move, single parent with five kids in the 60s. We never went on welfare. She worked two, three jobs. I rarely saw her. I love my mom. She was awesome. Nine years, she taught me so much. She wasn't a believer, but she had grown up in the Catholic Church. We always had fish on Friday. Pastor Dave, you don't force people to eat fish on Friday, do you? It was always fish sticks, too. They're quick to make, you know. We covered the rules. We got you fish sticks. Is God pleased with fish sticks? <laughs> but... Uh, but we were on the move, and, you know, it was a hard, a hard moment in our lives. And then my mom met a man, Hank. He was a gourmet chef. Uh, my mom managed restaurants, worked in restaurants, and she met Hank, fell in love, and they loved each other, and they got married. I was now probably eight years old. And Hank decided to save money here in Southern California. We would go rent an apartment in Compton. I think they saved quite a bit of money. <laughs> now, Compton, I went back just a while ago, about three months ago, and they've got beautification programs and flower boxes everywhere. It's like, what happened to Compton? <laughs> it was tough. This was probably 1971. 
I think it was the murder capital of the world that year, or of the United States. It was tough. It was tough. I had a guy, man, the meanest dude I knew was this white kid who foamed at the mouth. His name was Jack. And I made nicknames up for everybody. So this kid was Jack the Ripper because he was four grades older than me, but he just didn't like me. I was a quiet kid. You may not see that now. I was really withdrawn because of everything going on in my life. I was just like, don't bother me, don't look at me, don't see me. And uh, I remember telling my 15-year-old sister Kim about Jack the Ripper bullying me and wanting to beat me up. So unbeknownst to me, I'm running home, Jack the Ripper's on my tail. I, I weighed a lot less then, and I was much faster. And I was beating Jack the Ripper to my apartment door, and out from a hedge on Artesia Boulevard pops out my sister Kim. And she went, bam, and hit Jack the Ripper right in the face. And he's laying on the sidewalk. My sister's over him. I'm like in third grade. And she's going, leave my brother alone. I'm going to kill you. Because that's how we talk in Compton. (laughs) And believe it or not, it worked. But then I had a problem. The next day, telling my friends, my sister beat up the bully. That's not a guy thing. So, but anyway... We lived there for about a year, and then we moved to Long Beach, Eagle Street, in Long Beach, right near the 405. I remember Hank now was an ex-military drill sergeant, so we had a white glove test every Saturday. It was wonderful. He really taught me everything. In fact, if you go into my walk-in closet today, everything's in order. Suits by color, pant, 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 shirt right, shirt right, shirt right. That's the effect of Hank in my life. But he would do this. And I remember my mom was getting sick, but nobody talked to me about it. Nobody talked. Actually, Hank and my mom didn't talk to any of the kids. We didn't know what was going on. But uh, she would, Hank would lock her in the back bedroom. And I would go weeks without seeing my mom in the house that we all lived in. I mean, literally, I would go two, three weeks. But one day, her door was slightly ajar. And I remember hearing her voice call my name, Jimmy. And I went back, and I was thinking for every, the whole time, where's Hank? Because I didn't want to get smacked by Hank. He had a horrible temper, horrible temper. He was a gourmet chef. Like I said, he got the contract for uh, Mammoth Inn. And my brother Dave worked with him. And uh, one day his, the dishwasher washed his omelet pans in the, dish, the automatic dishwasher. He got so irritated with this guy, he fired him on the spot. The guy's heading out the kitchen door. Hank throws a meat cleaver at the guy. And it sticks in the door. Skaboom! My brother Dave turns to Hank and says, what can I do for you? (laughs) But that was our stepdad. He was like crazy. And, uh, but here he's locking my mom in the bedroom. But I hear my mom calling. Hank's not around. Okay, it's safe. I can go in there. So I go in there and my mom says, I want you to do a little project for me. I'm like, what, mom? And I kind of noticed she didn't look good. She was really thin. But, you know, I didn't know. Maybe it was a bad cold. I'm nine. And uh, she said, could you get a piece of paper and a pen? I want you to go get flower seeds. I said, sure. So I walk back in the bedroom, ready to write it down. I mean, I'm in fourth grade at Bixby Elementary School. I know how to spell rose. And she says, now, write this down. I want you to get my favorite flower seeds, chrysanthemums. Okay. Thankfully, I got them. I went down to little store, got the seeds, came back, planted them in the flower box outside her window. Probably six weeks later, my brother Mike is in the Navy. He's 19, and he's in the Navy. Big guy, my brother Mike, 6'5", played for Nevada, Reno, defensive tackle, 6'5", 290, and uh, I love brother Mike. He's, he's my hero. And Mike comes home on leave. I didn't know why, but he started calling the kids in the bedroom one at a time. So he called my brother, Dave, in, the next oldest, and Dave came out of the room crying. And then he called Kim into the room, firecracker Kim, she came out crying. And then Denise went into the room, and she came out crying. And then my brother Mike said, Jimmy, I need you to come into the room. I'm going, I'm not going in that room. I mean, I'm nine, but I'm not stupid. But I went into the room, Mike sat me on his knee, and he said, I've got horrible news for you, and there's no other way to do it, just I need to tell you, mom is dead. Mom is dead? I mean, I didn't even know it was coming. I would give you a little piece of advice. If you've got that kind of tragedy in your family, talk to your kids. It was more of a wound for me to just hear it like that than it was. I never even had a chance to say goodbye or I love you. My last act was simply to plant those flower seeds. 
oh, those flower seeds. I remember the day of the funeral, three days later. I got home. We all did. Hank went to the back bedroom, came out of the bedroom with his bags packed. Two suitcases. We didn't notice a taxi was on the curb in front of our house. And he said, I can't take the pressure. I'll never forget that. I can't take the pressure, so I'm going to be leaving and moving back to San Francisco. I was like, I can't take the pressure either. What do I get to do? Oh, you get to go to foster care. That's what you get to do. My brother Dave, during the funeral, my stepdad Hank had sold all of our furniture. You know what I mean when I say it that way. It wasn't his stuff. This was the stuff we owned. He sold everything in the house. We got back from the funeral. A few of our items, my toys, a few of my clothes were in a box marked Jimmy. And then Mike and Dave and Dee and Kim. It was about 10 boxes in the middle of the living room. Everything else in the whole house was gone. So Hank walks out the door. Then my brother Mike hugs me and says, I'm sorry, i got to get back to my ship. We're going off to Vietnam tonight. Okay. Love you. Love you, Mike. Bye. And my brother Dave knew somebody who agreed to take us in. They lived in Morongo Valley. You guys know where that is? So we're moving from Long Beach to Morongo Valley. Now, here's the amazing thing. My mom knew exactly what was happening because I went out to that flower box and all this chaos and I saw these little chrysanthemum shoots coming up. I think she knew exactly what she was saying to me, which is flowers will bloom. I'm gone, but good things will still happen in your life. I mean, it was just a little thing God used in my little nine-year-old heart to say it's going to be okay. What an awesome mom, huh? And uh, so the next day we're driving to the real family. That was their last name, the real family. I'm not kidding you. And the people that led my mom to the Lord the day before she died, our next-door neighbors, which we called grandma and grandpa. They weren't blood-related, but they were such good friends. Took us to church occasionally. They were the hopes, H-O-P-E. The hopes lead my mom to the Lord, and then I'm off to the real family. Now, the real family, living in Morongo Valley, he was uh, retired on disability. He used to work at an Iowa meatpacking plant, which is great. And it was nice of them to open their home up, but it was for the cash. They were probably getting $2,000 from my sister and I. My brother was kicking in more money. And my brother Dave and my sister Denise and I lived there. They had four sons. Dave Real, who was 18 that year, who married his 42-year-old cousin. Come on. That deserves some reaction. I mean, I was nine going, that is not right. In fact, I had not, no one had given me the talk yet. And I'm going, I'm not getting married. I have no cousins. Now, if you married your cousin, I'm okay with that. All right. Somebody puts up there, I'm married to my cousin. It happens. But this should not have happened. 1842. And then there was Paul, my brother's friend. Gary, who uh, ended up dying of AIDS in 1982, gay activist. And then Marky, who was eight, who would steal things from me. I had four headless G.I. Joes. I mean, I'm an orphan kid. I mean, I didn't have a plethora of toys. And he would take them and put them in his drawer, and I'd go to his mom and dad. In this case, it was the mom. And I said, Mrs. Real, because my mom taught me to talk to adults that way. Mrs. Real, uh, Marky's stolen these things from me. And she looked at me and said, not our Marky. You know, Jimmy, you just don't fit in with our family. I remember being nine going, that's a good thing. Thank you for that compliment. <laughs> I mean, you got to get some tough skin in that situation. I remember I'd go to Mr. Todd's class in fourth grade at Morongo Valley Elementary School. I'd sit on a sand hill and cry. I literally would walk right out of his class, and he wouldn't even disturb me. He knew it's my therapy time. I mean, I'm in fourth grade. And I walk out there, and I just bawl. And Mrs. Bandy, the school nurse, would come out, put her arm around me, and say, Hey, Jimmy, hey, it's going to be okay. I think, oh, great, another lying adult. Seriously. You don't have to get on the bus and go back to T-Circle Drive and walk a mile and a half down a dirt road into that chaos. But I do, and I don't think it's going to get better. Six months into it, (laughs) I'm with a social worker, her first visit, a very wise woman, probably 23, 24. I kind of started to have a puppy crush on her. And my brother Dave was there, and she looked at me across the table and said, we got a problem. I thought, oh, an adult that finally understands. And she looked at me and said, no, Mr. Real said you tried to kill him. I'm like, how? 
Now, some of you are going, well, did you? No. No. He was just like in a little bit not altogether there. And I said, how? And she said, well, he said you tried to push him off a cliff. And in my nine-year-old voice, I said, yeah, but we live in Morongo Valley. <laughs> there wasn't like a close-by cliff anywhere. In the valley. She just had this wonderful, confident smile when she told me. You know, Mr. Real said you tried to kill him. And it communicated to me, I know you're in trouble. I know that guy might be insane. I mean, it was all I needed was just that confident smile. And she believed me. And so uh, six months longer, we were there six months longer, and then my dad showed up. My bio dad. If you come from an alcoholic home, it's like this. Dad! Oh, dad. What dad am I going to get? And he came out to visit us. He had caught up with us at the real family and uh, said, you know, at the end of the time, he was out there with us all day, and I was on his leg, you know, grabbing his leg the whole time. And he looked at me, and big guy, 6'5", and he put, put his arm around me and said, Jimmy, do you want to come and live with me? Like, yes. I didn't care about the other stuff. So my sister Dee and I moved in with my dad in San Gabriel. And we lived with him one year. My sister turned 18. I'm now coming up on 12. And we just felt it wouldn't be appropriate for me to continue to live with my alcoholic father because he was still struggling. It would be unhealthy. But my family said, my siblings said, you got to tell him. So we had a family meeting. I'm looking him in the eye and I said, Dad, I, I don't think I should live with you anymore. He looked at me and said, why? I said, why didn't anybody prep me for that question? I just looked at him with my 11 and a half year old voice and said, because of, the, because of the things you did to mom. And to his credit, it was like his moment. He got up, came over, hugged me, said, I love you. And he walked out the door and he died four months later. I never had another chance to talk with him. That was it. Then I moved in with my brother in junior high. My brother Dave, who was 18, married to his pregnant 15-year-old girlfriend. So I looked at her. I'm like 12. I'm looking at her going, did I call you mom? You're like closer to my age than you are my brother's age. Is that crazy? So I remember, you know, playing football and I had a great football coach. I'd say to my brother, what, Friday night after the game, what time do you want me to come home? He'd say, you know, 2, 3 in the morning is okay. I remember thinking, I'll try to stay out that late. <laughs> I was not a bad kid. But it's like my whole environment was trying to pull me in that direction. And I just got to tell you, thank the Lord that he's close to brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Because that's where I was at. And I think the one thing I want to communicate to you today is we're all orphans. It's not just those people. We're all orphans in a spiritual sense. He has adopted each one of us into his family. So the power of that kind of affection, that kind of love, is great. And if we could grasp what he has done for us as our Heavenly Father, it shouldn't be a barrier to talk to any of, any, anybody about the saving knowledge of Christ, right? So there I was. I had a football coach. I'm 15. He takes me to an FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp at Point Loma. This guy, Jeff Jeffers, I met him just two years ago. I didn't know who it was. He came up to me at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes speech I gave and said, that was me. I was like, wow! He played quarterback for the San Diego Chargers. <laughs> I can't keep up with it out here, you know what I mean? But he's down in front, FCA camp, Point Loma. There's about 100, maybe 7,500 of us football players. And he's up there on the stage. He says, has your father let you down? Has your stepfather let you down? I thought the next thing he was going to say is, Mr. Real let you down. I'm like, back up against the wall, you know. Who is this guy? And he said, I'll introduce you to somebody who will never let you down. Jesus Christ. And my 15-year-old football body, I jumped up. Next thing I know, I'm right at the front. I'm the only guy there. And he just poured into me. And, I mean, it was it. It was the transformation in that moment. There's a lot of sanctification that has to happen for a 15-year-old boy who's told to not come home till 3 in the morning. But what an awesome thing that God looked down and said, okay, you're mine. All five of us kids have become Christians over 30 years. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, God is good. My... 
My sister Denise, the last holdout, probably like 10 years ago, knocks on my door, seven at night. Says, okay, I give up. What do I got to do to become a believer in Christ? <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? She goes, yeah, I'm serious. It's time. <laughs> this is crazy. Brought her in, talked her through it. Here's the bottom line. I applaud you as a church and Pastor Dave's leadership, Pastor Matt, everybody involved with uh, lifting up the plight of the orphan. Over 50 times, the Lord says, take care of the widow and the orphan. So again, I just, from an orphan's perspective, from a foster kid's perspective, you never know what that smile will do, what that encouragement will do, what that arm around some kid's shoulder will do. Just saying, you know, God loves you. That made all the difference in the world to me. God loves you. It drew me into him. And it was through people like you. Just somebody to be an encouragement to me. Somebody said, you know, life will go on. That God cares about you. Because when you're crying yourself to sleep every night, because you don't know who in your life cares, you don't know who the next liar is, it's great to know where truth comes from. And that's from Christ. Amen. Let me, I've got just a couple minutes. I want to show you a quick film. We do something at Focus called Wait No More, and it's foster adoption, foster care. We've had over 3,500 families start the adoption process. It's probably multi-sibling adoptions have occurred. Probably 7,000 kids out of the 100,000 have been adopted. And it's working with Bethany and with other organizations. We just convene in a church, maybe 1,000 people, and usually about 40% will start the adoption process or the foster process. It's hard work. It's not glamorous. You often will cry yourself to sleep at night. But let's hear, as a way to close this, Amanda's story. I grew up in New Jersey. So we fluctuated between here and New Jersey, back and forth, because my biological mother didn't really like being with our dad so she would take us kids and then our dad would come back and take us back and she would come back with us and we lived on the streets we lived in shelters we lived in a van it was just our normal we got beat all the time so growing up that way it was normal to us i was women's ministry director did vacation bible school directing did all the stuff in the church but it never even dawned on us to foster or adopt i think i've said that I could never adopt another child because I just didn't think I had the capacity to love like that, somebody who wasn't biological. I knew there was something wrong with the way our dad was treating us and abusing us and you know, beating us with belts, you know, using guns um, to threaten us. It, it, it was bad and I don't really want to go into that right now, but um, my biological mother left when I was five years old and so he was with a whole bunch of different women and then eventually married another woman who is my stepmother. And one day we caught my dad beating up on my stepmother and my brother Vinny um, decided to fight back and he went off on my dad. And there were so many times that we talked about jumping over the back fence, running through the sewer and getting to the fire department to tell people. And we've always dreamed about trying to figure out what we can do to get out of the situation that we're in. And that one day Vinny was like, I'm done with this. And he he flips out on my dad and does exactly what we said we would do, and he runs, and then we ended up in foster care. A friend that I had met had suggested that we start volunteering at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. So I was there like three days a week because I was just so engaged in these young girls' hearts. But just hearing their stories and how many of them came from the system, and I had no idea in the beginning what the system was, but I learned pretty quickly that it was something that um, often enabled them. And I came home to my husband one day and I said, you know, I just can't help but think that many of these girls came out of foster care. And if they were touched back here, at the beginning and had decent foster parents, maybe they wouldn't be at the pregnancy center right now. And so I said, can we just like start praying about becoming foster parents or something? Because I just feel like there's another step here for us. From seven to nine, I was in foster care. And then from 15 to the beginning of my 18th birthday, I was in foster care. I went through maybe five or six homes um, through the course of three years. I still had this little tickle in my heart of 
I think there's another step here that we're supposed to do. So at the Wait No More conference, I came across the CASA booth, Court Appointed Special Advocate where advocates get assigned to kids in the foster care system. And he's like, that's what you should do. <laughs> that's, that's how you should take care of this itch <laughs> and this tickling in your heart. Gail was my CASA worker from the beginning. So like, she would try to talk to us and be like, you know, I'm here to help you I'll be your voice in court. I'm here to help you with money for things that you need. Just let me know. And it was more like she was, I, I don't I, I did not like her, and I told her that to her face. I was like, I don't like you. I said, I don't like any of you guys. And I said, you guys are going to try to break my family apart. Over time, there was different social workers. They were constantly changing. I think I was on my fifth home, and after two years of being in foster care, Gail was like that one constant in my life. And one night I was on the phone with Amanda, and her kin-like mom was yelling at her in the background for something and they were at odds with each other and Amanda was crying and angry and I got off the phone and I'm like, Tom, I just wish we could do something for her because she's gonna end up in a girl's home and she does not deserve a girl's home. She just needs somebody who understands her. For me, it's hard to trust people. And so with that time and knowing that she was constantly gonna be there for me, as a CASA worker, she was like that. And so I, I, I started loving her. Little did I know that, I look back at it now, but I did. That night, you know, I just tossed and turned all night, arguing with the Lord about bringing her into our home and why we couldn't do it. We had two teenage boys, and how could I bring a Latino female girl into this home? And he just said, I got this. I got this, Gail. This is what I really want you to do. And then um, my mom was like, well, honey, I'm sorry I can't be your CASA worker anymore. And she's like, I'll be here for you as a friend. And she left, and I just started bawling my eyes out. And I was like, this is, this is crazy. So she's like that one person who's always there for me. And she said she would never leave, and there she goes, and she's walking away. And so when she did that, I was, I was crushed. And my brother Rob comes over and hugs me. He's like, everything's going to be all right. We're going to find another CASA worker who will be um, better. And I was like, no, we won't. I'm going to my friend's house, driving there, and the song Beautiful by Mercy Me came on. You were beautiful. You were made for so much more than this. If they only knew your heart, they'd know too much. And I just was bawling. And I call my husband. I'm like, you gotta listen to this song. I just really feel like it's what the Lord wants us to give Amanda. Do you know it? Get it on the Internet. Listen to it. And he's like, I know it. I know the song. I don't need to listen to it. Do what you gotta do. I think it was two two weeks later, um, Gail gives me a call and she's like, well, the reason why I can't be your CASA worker is because I am gonna be your foster mom. And then we went and visited this room and this house and she was like, this is where you're gonna be sleeping. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. It was definitely a blessing to actually have them. <laughs> Gets me all excited. <laughs> adoption is great when they are the right parents but if you just throw rules at a at a child you're never gonna reach them fully and I think that's also an important thing is to figure out what it is about that child that needs change that needs to be fixed but do it in a way that once you understand the child that will be in the best interest for them and so my parents did a fantastic job doing that and they're still doing that to this day you know so yeah I think it's great <laughs> heart being moved a bit. <laughs> Appreciate Jim. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for introducing us to Amanda's story. It's wonderful. <laughs> you couldn't see this, but Jim just pointed up, which really this isn't even Jim's story or Amanda's story or any of our stories. It's God's story. Uh, Jesus is doing something uh, when it comes to caring for the orphan among us. Uh, in your bulletin, the booklet you received when you came in, you received a lot of things in there today, but try to find these two cards. One says faith promise. One says ways to get involved with orphan care. Will you just hold both those cards in your right and left hand if you're able for a moment? 
let me walk through these cards briefly with you. The My Faith Promise card. Last week we got to hear from Oleg Rutsky, one of our missionary partners in Moldova, and he challenged us with some of the reasons we hold back from missions. And he just said, get involved. And one of the ways you can get involved in what we're doing around the world is by committing to a faith promise. It's one of the ways we give to missions here at Calvary Church. It's above and beyond what you normally commit financially here in your giving. And it's saying above and beyond by faith, I'm going to trust that God will provide the finances to give what he is doing, his story around the world. And so if you're not part of our faith promise team, we'd love to have you join us today. It's anonymous, but it's between you and God. And you can simply fill out this bottom section and commit to what God would have you commit to. And you can turn that in in the offering as we pass that in just a couple of minutes. And then the other card you have, it says ways to get involved in orphan care. And we apologize, the font here is about six. So you may have to kind of look like this or, or wait till you get home. But what you'll see here are just tons of different ways, tangible ways that you personally can get involved in the life of an orphan. Often we think it's this huge step that we're committing forever just by visiting one of the tables here today. But often it's like Amanda's mom's story. It's just a little step. It's saying, God, I'm available. How, how would you use me? There's ways to financially support. There's ways to pray. There are ways to get involved even beyond that. And so I encourage you to take this card, put it somewhere you're going to remember it, tape it on your mirror, put it in your Bible, somewhere where you can reflect and go, God, I'm available, use me, may your spirit lead me. And I invite you, even as Wendy was sharing earlier, to go out into our white tents up in the courtyard today. And it's really a continuum of care that we have out there. We have Compassion International, which helps feed kids who are vulnerable to becoming orphans. And next to them, we have Obria Medical Clinics, which is a pro-life pregnancy center located several places here in Orange County that help moms who are freaking out and often are susceptible um, to making really bad choices. And then we have Safe Families for Children, which wraps around families that are in crisis. We have Olive Crest, which you heard from Wendy and you heard one of the stories today. And then we have Bethany Adoption Services, which would love to even just get to know you and introduce themselves. They do domestic and, and international adoption. We have CASA workers that are out there that would come just be a court-appointed special advocate. And then we have a new partnership with an orphanage in Tijuana, which we're really excited about. We want to get you to know them. And so I encourage you, just take a step. Say, God, use me. What do you want? And so let's pray right now. Father, I thank you. Thank you for Jimmy Daly. And your calling on his life, God. How you protected him in incredible ways. Ways that he may not even fully understand today. God, thank you for how you use him in an international platform today. Father, there's a lot of Jimmys out there. And I pray, God, that you would show each of us in our stories how we're to get involved. God, this is no guilt or obligation. This is simply stepping into what you're already doing. So use us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.